We arrive today to Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answers 59 through 61. Let's read these responsibly together. But how does it help you now that you believe all this? That I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction righteousness and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me if only I accept this gift with a believing heart why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. Amen. This is the word of God summarized for us, handed down to us by our forefathers and generations past. May the Holy Spirit now teach it to our hearts. Let's ask for his help. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us now in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your Son, whom you have appointed our mediator and Savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness, to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and edification of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. We pray this in the name and favor of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, in dependence on his Holy Spirit. Amen. Kids, have you ever done something that you knew was wrong. You knew it was wrong, and you did it anyway. Have you ever done anything like that? Surely not. (laughs) Think about how that made you feel afterwards. You did something bad, you knew what you had done. Think about how it made you feel. Maybe you had some nervousness that your parents would find out, or that you knew you'd have to tell them, or that your siblings saw it. Maybe you even had an upset stomach, made you feel nauseous knowing that some kind of punishment was coming around. Well, then what happens if you get to the other side of that? Your parents forgive you. You're restored back into relationship with your parents. The guilty feelings maybe finally go away. You feel like you've got a kind of a free and open relationship with your parents again. You don't have this punishment hanging over you anymore. How about with God? That's a question for all of us. The Bible teaches us that we have broken God's commandments. And oftentimes we don't know that we're doing it. 
because we sin so frequently, frequently that we can't keep track. But just as often, we, we do know that we're breaking his commandments. And we need him to forgive us and to make us right with him. We need a restored relationship with him. That's what our catechism lesson is about today. Is the, the restoration of a broken relationship between God and man. Because we have broken the commandments. And we have, we have consciences that have terrible weights laid upon them. Question 59 asks, how does it help you now that you believe all this? The all this of question 59 is referring to the Apostles' Creed. Back in question 23, several weeks ago, that's when we learned the Creed. And since then, the Catechism has been explaining each article of it for us. Now the Catechism says, okay, you believe all that. How does it help you? How does it comfort you that you believe all this? In other words, when you believe the teaching that is summarized in the Apostles' Creed, there is a result that is meant to be your comfort and your help. And the result is that you are righteous in Christ before God and an heir of life everlasting. You are just. You're righteous in God's sight. And you now have a right to life. A legal right to live in the presence of God. That's the help that you get when you firmly believe all that is given to us in the Apostles' Creed. Well, what we're talking about here is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Which means to be righteous before God. That's what justification means. To be declared righteous in God's sight. God's sight to have a standing of justice in his sight. And today we're going to see why this needs to happen and how it happens. First, what is righteousness? What is righteousness? Righteousness is when someone is in step with the law. The theologians define righteousness as being in conformity with the law. You are fully in line with the, the demands and the commandments of the law. And another word for this, as we've already implied, is justice. When you are conformed to the law... You have justice. You are a just and upright person. Uh, when, when someone is righteous or just, it means they have obeyed the law. In a legal trial, in a courtroom, a person is declared not guilty because it has been shown that he or she has obeyed rather than disobeyed the law. Okay, so we're saying this in a number of different ways to get the point across. Righteousness is conformity to the law. And in particular, when we're talking about not just a, you know, a civil court case, we're talking about justice before God. So we must be in conformity to God's law. And another difference when it comes to uh, the laws of our land and the, the uh, judicial system of the land, there is no way for judges and juries to actually know the full truth. But God knows the full truth. So he knows when someone is actually in conformity to the law. In order to be righteous, you must know and obey the law. You can see this connection in Scripture. Connection between righteousness and the law. Isaiah 51, verse 7. God says, 
Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Okay, God is saying that those who know what righteousness and justice is are those who have the law written in their hearts. They're in conformity with the law, so they're righteous. Or in Romans chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says that just hearing the law, knowing about the law, isn't enough to be considered righteous. But doing the law is the key thing. You must obey the law. And Paul says it plain as day. If you keep the law, you will be declared righteous. If you keep the law, you will be declared righteous. Romans chapter 2. That's what Paul's arguing there. Because that's what righteousness is. It is to be in step with the law, to be conformed to it. Kids, let's say now that your parents have given you a job to do. They say, uh, we're about to eat dinner. You don't get to eat until you've cleaned up the yard because you made a mess out there all day. So you've got to clean up the yard, put your toys away, put your bikes away, put the chickens away. You've got to know your audience. Um, put it away, clean up, and then you can come and eat. Okay? You can either not do it, in which case you're not just in your parents' eyes, and there's a punishment for it. You can't have dinner. Or you can do exactly as they said, and you will be, in your parents' eyes, righteous. They gave you a kind of law. You performed the law. You did what it said, and now you are just in their eyes. You get to have a seat at the dinner table. You must do it. You're in step with what they've said. You've conformed to their law. That is a kind of righteousness. And again, what we're talking about today is a perfect righteousness before God and his law. That's what righteousness is. Conformity to the law. Secondly, we ask the question, why do we need it? Why do we need this conformity to the law? We need it because we have not and we do not keep God's law perfectly. In other words, we're not in conformity with it. We lack righteousness, and we must have that if we are to have life with God. We must be righteous in God's standing. You see, this is not the kind of teaching that our world likes, but God is a just God. He is not an unjust God who just sweeps sin under the rug, but he deals with it. He is a God filled with justice. He is angry with sin all the time, the Psalms tell us. He's angry at sin because it is a transgression of the law of God. That's what sin is. And to such people, you and me, who haven't kept the law, God's law doesn't declare us justified. If the law has anything to say about it, we're the opposite. We're cursed. We're not righteous. We're cursed. Deuteronomy 27 verse 26 says... Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. You must perform the law of God in order to be declared righteous in his sight. And if you don't, a curse is upon you. Now, we have this sin problem. That's the way that it is. Sin has come into the world. We no longer conform to the the law of God. And so our conscience which is kind of our inner self, 
accuses us of three main things. Correctly, by the way, your conscience is telling you the truth. It accuses you of three things that question and answer 60 in the catechism sums up for you. The first is that we have grievously sinned against God's commandments. We don't keep the commands. Secondly, we've never perfectly kept any of them. So not only do we not keep them, but we never have. And third, finally, our conscience, even as Christians, accuses us of still being inclined toward all evil. You have a new nature, you have a new heart through the Holy Spirit, but the old, the old self is in there. This is why James says that you have a, you have a war of passions within your heart. There's a war taking place within. And you are still inclined toward all evil. And your conscience is there to accuse you constantly. And this experience of the conscience is a big part of what it means to be cursed. God has given a law and he demands that we be conformed to it and to walk and step with it. But we don't. We never have. And we're still inclined toward hatred of God and neighbor. Yet the demand remains. Any, any system of religion or any expression of the Christian faith that tells you that God knows that we're sinners, he knows we're human, and so he has made his law lax is a false expression of the scriptures. God has not slackened his law. The demand remains forever. As Jesus summarizes in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We need righteousness. We need this status. Otherwise, we have no right to eternal life. We have no right to enter into the kingdom of God. And we have no hope in the world. Lastly, as we've seen what righteousness is and now why we need it, we ask the question, how do we get it? How do we get this righteousness? To be righteous means that you are justified in God's sight. That's what, again, this is what, ju- this is what we're talking about with this key term in the Christian faith, justification. It is to be righteous in God's eyes and specifically for God to pronounce that, to declare it to be so. And there are two ways you can hear this declaration from God. You can, uh, first, here's the first way. You can satisfy for your debts against God. You can start keeping the commandments perfectly all the time. And you can change your heart so that you perfectly love God and your neighbor forever. But you can't sin anymore because you'll, you'll start racking up debt again. And then you've got to pay it off. So if you do those things, you will be justified. You will be declared righteous in God's sight by works. You will be declared to be legally in conformity with God's law. And you will be able to boast about it because you got the job done yourself. Romans chapter 4 says that Abraham is our great example when it comes to the matter of faith. And in chapter 4, verse 2, it says, If Abraham was justified by works, 
He has something to boast about, but not before God. Brothers and sisters, since sin has come into this world, this first option of being justified by works is impossible and it is an insult to God. Because he knows our hearts and he sees our behavior. We cannot trick him. Though we may think we have something to boast about, not before God. We cannot trick him and neither should we try to trick ourselves. So we are not justified by works. Not even a little bit as we will learn next week in the catechism. Not even a little bit. There is another way, and it is the only true way to have right standing before God. Once again, Abraham, the patriarch, is our example. We read about him earlier from Genesis 15. And now here in Romans, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, looks back on this episode with Abram in Genesis 15. And here's what Paul says. He says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Paul is pointing out to us that back in Genesis, God did not say, Abraham, do such and such a thing and then I will declare you to be righteous. No. That is not what happened at all. What happened in Genesis 15 is that Abraham came with all his doubts and God made more promises and sealed those promises with a covenant and then Abraham believed the promises. With true faith, which we learned back in question 21, is knowledge, agreement, and trust. It's mainly trust. That's what true faith is. With true faith, Abraham believed the Lord, and this faith was counted to him as righteousness. What we all need, what Abraham needed, was given to him, not by works, but through faith alone. That's what we read in Genesis 15. This is not some New Testament novelty. It's there from the beginning that the word of the Lord came to Abram, and he, though weak, believed, and God said, righteous, on the, on the basis of his faith. And it is the same for us. It is the same for us. Paul goes on to say now, now that he's spoken about Abraham, he doesn't leave us hanging. He says in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, now, to the one, meaning whoever, to whoever works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You do the work, you get a reward for that. You get what is due to you. You've earned it. Paul says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Not just Abraham, but whoever believes that faith is counted as righteousness. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ stands before you as a perfect mediator and savior. He is perfectly righteous in all his words and works. He is perfect inside and out, thought, word, and deed, perfectly 
personally, perpetually righteous. And this righteousness is offered to you, not by works, but by faith alone. He was nailed to the cross on account of your sins. And he has thereby satisfied God's justice. You see, the demand has not been slackened. It's that Christ has met the demand for you. Fully. There's no other work of satisfaction for you to do. No prayer you can pray. No good work you can perform. That can add to the perfect and sufficient work of Jesus Christ. And in God's amazing grace. He is willing to look to Jesus' conformity to the law. And then credit it to you. When you receive Christ. What you are receiving. Is his satisfaction. His righteousness, His holiness. And the result is primarily two things. You must know this when you think about the doctrine of justification. Because there are always attacks on this doctrine. Primarily what comes to you is, number one, the forgiveness of all your sins. Past, present, and future. And secondly... The crediting of Christ's righteousness to you. There are those in the Christian faith who have good intentions, but they either say or they imply to you that Jesus has died for your sins, you get a clean slate, now get to work. And that is not the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification says that your slate is wiped clean forever in heaven, and you cannot add to this in any way, shape, or form. And if you're going to get to work, it is just to say thank you. All your sins are forgiven for the sake of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And his perfect status is given to you by faith and by faith alone. There is no other instrument you have to receive this gift. You cannot receive with works. Can you put works into your hand and then receive anything? No, it gets in the way of Christ. And receiving his righteousness. You must get rid of all your works. Any kind of idea that you can perform. In order to receive this righteousness. He's the perfect savior. And he gives you the perfect righteousness. You say. But you don't know what I've done. You don't know the darkness of my heart. You don't know the things that I deal with. True enough. But Christ knows. And true faith receives him. True faith receives him. And if you have received Christ, then God counts you as having never sinned, nor been a sinner, and counts it as though you had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for you. End of story. You try to add anything to that, and now you're trying to justify yourself. You say, okay, well, I get the faith thing, but I have deep doubts sometimes about God. My faith is not strong. 100% granted. Granted. But it is not the worthiness of your faith that receives Christ. It is a true faith that receives Christ. Our faith waxes and wanes, but Christ doesn't. 
He is the always perfectly reliable Savior, always standing ready to forgive. I guess we should say sitting ready to forgive because he's at the right hand, having made purification for your sins. There's no suspense about what he's going to say to you on the last day. When he returns in glory with his holy angels and he is meeting out justice to all of his enemies, you do not need to be as our children are when they've done something wrong, wondering what the punishment is going to be. The verdict is already in. The verdict of the last day is already in. And that verdict is righteous in the sight of God for the sake of Jesus Christ. You have no other ground to stand on, brothers and sisters. This has been graciously granted to you. Cling to it with all your might and for all your days. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you build your church on the foundation of the doctrine of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And so we pray that you would bless our congregation to grow in their teaching. Assist us in meditating with joy on your mighty acts. Enlighten our minds more and more with the light of the everlasting gospel. Kindle in our hearts a love of your truth. Nourish us with the full counsel of the word of God. Enable us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And defend us from the sins of heresy and schism. And as we have heard the true doctrine proclaimed to us by your great blessing may be preserved among us and propagated through us by our lips and lives to the glory of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.